Thanks, Jim. Good morning, everybody. I want to start off by inviting our children to Children's Church. If you want to meet your teacher in the back, it's just an age-appropriate setting for kids to learn the Bible. Um, Let's open with a word of prayer before we turn to the Word. Lord, um, we're grateful for the, the time, the place, and the freedom to come and to gather together to worship you as your church. And Lord, um, this is something that you have ordained uh, that we do. And so we're glad to do it. We, we recognize the benefits of doing it. And Lord, we pray for churches around the world who don't have the same freedom. The, the, they lack the liberty to gather freely to worship you. And Lord, I think especially of churches in China right now where the, the government seems to be really cracking down. Lord, would you protect your saints? Lord, I pray that you would persevere their faith, that you would keep them strong to the very end. Uh, Lord, whether that is uh, restoration of their churches, continuing to meet underground, or even martyrdom. Uh, Father, have mercy on them, and I pray that you would share your grace, that um, when people look to them, they would see, like we heard read this morning, the, the grace of God at work in them. And so, Father, have mercy on your church around the world. Lord, we ask that you'd have mercy on us also. Would you be with us as we turn to your word? Help us to see and to understand what it is that we need to learn this morning. Lord, speak to us, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name for his, uh, for his uh, sake. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, um, okay, so we're finishing chapter 11. We've, we've just completed that big, huge section about the, uh, the conversion of Cornelius. And it was pretty significant. It took up two chapters worth of information to get Cornelius converted to, uh, to Christ. Um, the part we're looking at now, I, I don't know if when Jim was reading, if it, did it feel like a transitional part? Like we were moving from one thing to the next. Uh, that's kind of what it feels like. It's almost like Luke kind of sums things up and moves along. Um, but I was talking with Ken this morning. It's always surprising when you hit these kind of transitional things and you go, gee, I don't know what that's going to be like. They're so rich. There's so much going on. Do you remember the last time we did that transitional part? It felt like all Luke was doing was getting Peter to Joppa so that he could then be sent off to Caesarea for the real work of converting the, uh, the Gentiles. But what we found there was this, this blessing on just ordinary Christians, just Christians being Christians, and how significant and important that was. And I found that really encouraging. It was a similar thing with this. this. This morning, this transitional piece, as we move from the uh, conversion of Cornelius, we're going to kind of next week kind of wrap up Peter's um, story. And then in chapter 13, we get to uh, Saul and Paul in his ministry. Uh, so it almost is transitioner transitionary, but it's really not. There's a lot going on here. What, we're, what, what sits at right at the center of this section is that phrase, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And really, that's what this section is about, is what does it mean to be called a Christian? And, and what's behind all of that? So we're going to see three things that come out in this section on being a Christian. Preaching, teaching, and caring. Those are the kind of the three movements of it. Uh, so the first portion is this, this concept of preaching. Um, it talks about, Luke starts off, but he, he reminds us of a history lesson. He kind of takes us back in time. Uh, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. And so we remember that from uh, Acts chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, and then Stephen was killed and, and the church scattered. As a matter of fact, right at the beginning of chapter 8, it says, and there arose on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered all throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
So we kind of go back and we pick that thread up and, and we go forward a little bit. Those who were scattered, what were they doing? Um, they had gone as far as Phoenicia, Cyrus, uh, Cyprus, and Antioch. Could you put the map up real quick? Um, this is the region that we're kind of talking about. So Jerusalem, you notice Jerusalem's getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> the map keeps zooming out. Um, it's almost like Jesus had warned us that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. It's almost like that was the plan. Um, so you see Jerusalem's getting smaller. Phoenicia is up above Samaria. It's actually what we would today call Lebanon is that area. And then Cyprus is this big island off of Turkey. And Antioch is right up there in that corner. So those are the kind of places that we're discussing uh, as, we, as we look at where the apostles or where the disciples went. So originally it said they went through Judea and Samaria. Well, we're outside of Judea and Samaria by the time we get to Phoenicia. And especially, you can tell from Cyprus. So that, that dispersion, that scattering of the disciples, it didn't just stop right there. They continued to move out. And so we're seeing we're, the, the, the map is zooming out. We're heading to bigger places. So this is where the, the people are. Because of the persecution that started with Stephen, it scattered the church. And so the church has now gone much further. Um, these areas, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, they're all predominantly Greek cities, Greek areas. These are, there, there are not large Jewish populations in these. So as the disciples scatter, they're scattering into very Jewish areas. As a matter of fact, the city of Antioch was at one time the third largest city in the known world. It was huge. What, by the time we get to the New Testament, there was a big earthquake in 36, I think it was 36 BC, and it destroyed most of the city, but the emperor rebuilt it. it, it at this time, in New Testament times, at the point we're at now in history, it's the seat of Roman government within Syria, within that area. So that Antioch is not just a small little town. It's a significant city. It's pretty large and very Hellenistic, very Greek. Uh, but the same thing is true in Phoenicia and especially Cyprus. These are, these are predominantly Greek areas. Um, so the, the disciples are scattered there. And what did they do? What do disciples of Christ do? They speak the word. They go out and they tell other people. But at this point, they speak the word to no one except Jews. Now, is that being racist or, or biased or anything? What it is, is these are Jewish believers, and what they experienced in Jerusalem was the, the Jewish Messiah had come in Jesus Christ, and so they, they spoke to Jews because they thought this is who the Messiah was for. They're not being ugly about it. They're just, this is their experience. Apparently, they haven't heard, or they didn't read chapters uh, uh, 10 and 11 yet. They hadn't got there yet. They hadn't heard the story about Peter and the great lengths the Lord went to bring Cornelius in, so they're still focusing just on the Jews. Um, but there's more going on. It turns out that there's some folks who uh, come from Cyprus and Cyrene. So we, we now go to other places. So we're back to Cyprus, which is that island. You notice down in the corner it says Cyrene, and there's an arrow pointing up. Cyrene is actually what we would call today Tripoli which is off in the northern coast of Africa. It's uh, uh, Libya today. That was the city of Cyrene. Wait a second. The gospel went to Africa with the Ethiopian eunuch, but that was, Ethiopian eunuch, but that was sub-Saharan Africa. That was even below um, uh, Egypt at that point. 
The disciples now are all the way over to the, the northern coast of Africa. The gospel has spread in ways we haven't been told about. It, when we're reading the book of Acts, Luke has got a very specific focus. He's got the lens zoomed in on some very specific things, and so he's covering this. But that's not to say there were no, nothing else was happening anywhere else in the world. It's just the story that we're being told is right here. So now we've got disciples from Cyrene, and somehow they meet up with disciples from Cy, uh, Cyprus. And where do they go? What are they doing? These disciples came to Antioch and spoke to Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So these disciples somehow have met up, and they went to the major metropolis in the area. They went to the big city of Antioch, and they began to preach the gospel. Now, time out. They spoke to Hellenists. Do you remember how we've used Hellenists before? Hellenists, we used it, the way we were talking about it before was um, Jews who spoke Greek, or Jews from a Greek cultural background. Uh, that was chapter 6, verse 1, the Hellenist uh, widows were complaining because the Hebrew-speaking widows were getting taken care of first. And then again in 929, it talks about the Greek-speaking Jews. So it seems here that there's a contrast between, well, the disciples only spoke to the Jews, but these other disciples spoke to the Hellenists. Well, I thought the Hellenists were Jews. Well, you have to be careful here. This is actually a little bit of a sticky, uh, sticky verse for a couple of reasons. First of all, when we say the word Hellenist, all it means is those who speak Greek. That's basically what it means. So who does that include? Well, you've got to look at the context. And the context in those other two passages was extremely clear. It was speaking about Jews, Jews who spoke um, Greek, not Jews who spoke Hebrew. So in this case, what does a context tell us? Well, Luke seems to put a contrast between Jews and Hellenists. So what he's probably referring to is Greeks at this point. As a matter of fact, there's a, a thing called a textual variant. Um, that's where we get different manuscripts from early on in church history, and there's, there's a, a change of word here between different manuscripts. Some of them have the word for Hellenists, and some just have the word for Greek. And so there's, there's a discussion about how do you decide if it's a tie. You usually go with which one's older, and then if there's a tie between the number of manuscripts, how do you decide which word it is? Is it Hellenists or is it Greeks? Well, the, the way that usually you respond to that is you take the harder interpretation because it's more likely that a scribe would go, that can't be the right word, let me change that. Um, I think that's kind of hard to believe too, but I mean, that could happen. In this case... I think it's even easier because the difference between the word Hellenists and the word uh, Greek is one vowel and then dropping three letters at the end. That's the only difference. So it could be working late into the night, Brother Adelphus or whoever it was, set his pen down for a second, got up, got a glass of mead, came back and picked it up and, and just missed that. Like he thought he knew what word it was. I mean, I, that could be, that's how simple of a difference it is. Um, so my take on this, my approach is to go with the word Hellenist. Um, it, because it's more difficult and because I get to talk about it more. <laughs> because it's more difficult. Um, but the, a lot of the commentators just kind of dropped it and said, no, it should be Greek. Why? <laughs> it violates all, all I know about textual criticism is that's not the way it should work. Um, but whether it's Hellenist or Greek, guess what we're talking about? We're talking about Greeks. So I just want to bring that up because if you look at some other translations, you get other, uh, other words there, other ways that it's translated. And it depends on which side of the, the debate they, they uh, arrived at. 
whether it should be this one or that one. And honestly, I'm not an expert in papyrus number 251 and the date of the alpha text. And I don't know all that stuff, so I'll go with what they said. It's Greeks. Simple answer. So what happens is these folks from Cyprus and Cyrene, independent of Peter's revelation, are preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Because where does this section start? It says, those, uh, it says that uh, the church in Jerusalem heard about this. Not that the church throughout the rest of the area heard about it. So something has, has convinced these people this Jesus needs to be preached to the Greeks as well. Perhaps they heard about Peter. It's not clear. But they have gone and they have started preaching the gospel to, uh, to the Gentiles. And what's the result of this preaching? What, what falls out of this? A great number who believe turn to the Lord. A great number. Not a few. Not one or two. A great number turned to the Lord. Now, it, the way it words it in the ESV is a little weird because it says a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So was there a small number who believed who didn't turn to the Lord? What does it mean to believe except to turn to the Lord? So um, again, I'm not a great Greek translator on this stuff, but the NIV and the King James both say believed and turned. They kind of drop that word who out of the translation. So maybe what the idea behind this is, because with Greek, the order of the words is not terribly important. So the word who kind of gets dropped in in what seemed to me to be an odd place. So maybe the idea is great was the number who believed and turned. Maybe that's what we're getting at. So the idea is a lot of people heard this message in Antioch, this gigantic metropolis, this central important area in the, uh, the region, in the area of Syria, heard the gospel, and these Gentiles believed in great numbers. So you get what the problem here is? We had an issue with Cornelius because the Ethiopian eunuch converted. He, he became a believer, but we shipped him off to Ethiopia. He didn't join an existing church that was primarily Jews. He went home. With Cornelius, you remember the issue there was Cornelius wasn't going anywhere. There were already believers in Caesarea, and when Peter comes and preaches the gospel, now Cornelius, his whole household, and a bunch of his friends become Christians, and they're all Gentiles, and now they've got to mingle with Jews in the church. That was the big issue for them. Again, here's the problem. is There's an existing church in Antioch, and now a great number of Gentiles have been converted, and they have to come in. So it's, it's an issue for the church. Early on in church history, this was a problem is what do we do with this? We, they hadn't worked through all the theology, all the, the biblical promises throughout the Old Testament that said the Gentiles will worship Yahweh. They will come in and they will join and they'll be part of the, the uh, body of believers. So what Luke does is he took great pains, remember, with Cornelius. He does the similar kind of thing here. He says, the hand of the Lord was with them. What, what Luke is relating here is he's saying, as those believers went out and preached the gospel to the Gentiles, the hand of the Lord was with them. And therefore, a great number became believers. And so that's important because what Luke wants to show here is this is not something that's happening independent. This wasn't, they made a bad mistake and it just turned out nice. This is something that God had intended. This is something God is doing. God's hand is moving. He is with them. And it's God's intention to bring these Gentiles in in great number. And that's exactly what's happening. So that's the preaching. That's what the church does when the church preaches and the Lord is with the church. 
great numbers come. And so that's something that we can learn. That's something we can pick up this morning is as we're sharing the gospel with people, we could anticipate large numbers. Now, don't, don't bank on it because who does, who's the deciding factor in this? Whose hand was with who? The hand of the Lord was with them. And it's the Lord who will determine. But we can go with expectation saying, Lord, you've done this before. We've seen you do this in history. Would you do that now? And then we trust in him. Because if you remember early on, one of the things I said when we talked about the Holy Spirit coming on people, I said that to make a disciple, it's really easy. All you've got to do is preach the, preach the gospel to them and then let the Holy Spirit come on them. And you don't have any control over the Holy Spirit coming on them, so it's beyond your control. Just preach the gospel. God will make disciples. He will send the Holy Spirit on them. They will believe. They will become uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're seeing right here. Is, is he has done these things for them. So that's the preaching part. What happens next? We're called to make disciples, aren't we? We're told to make disciples, not converts. So you don't just preach the gospel to somebody and drop them and go, well, hope you do well, bye. What we are told to do is then to make them disciples. Disciples are learners. A disciple is someone who has a master who is teaching them and the disciple submits to the master and says, I will follow your way. And that's what we're told to do is make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so the next thing they have to do is they have to learn about Jesus Christ. Not just that he died for their sins, but what does that mean? And so here's what happens next. The report of this comes to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. So the church, right now, the headquarters of the church is still in Jerusalem. It was kind of a cultural thing because that's where it started. It's still fairly new. And so that's kind of where the, the, the center of gravity is, if you will. And so when the, when the church in, in Jerusalem hears about it, they say, well, wait a minute, we got to investigate this. We just heard about Cornelius, and this is new to us. So we need to send somebody. Who, who are you going to send to investigate this? Barnabas. If we ever get investigated, I want Barnabas to come and do it. This guy is incredible. He's described here as a man, a good man. He is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's the guy I want to walk in and say, hey, we want to check out your church. We want to evaluate it and see how it's going, see, see what's happening. And what a great report we get of him. Barnabas has, has, been, has come up before and listen to the descriptions we get of him. In Acts chapter 4, just before Ananias and Sapphira, he's a model of generosity. When we, when we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, I said they probably looked to Barnabas and said, yeah, we want to be like that. We want to be a generous person like him. Barnabas was known to be a generous person. Not only that, but his name, his given name, was Joseph. He was called Barnabas. And then when Luke says he was called Barnabas, he translates for us right there in chapter 4 what that means. Barnabas was a son of encouragement. I want a son of encouragement to come and evaluate my church. I don't want a son of criticism. I don't know what the Greek word for that is, but I don't care. I don't want to hear it. He's a son of encouragement. And then um, when he does that, he is also, by the way, what we learn in chapter 4 is he's from Cyprus. He sold property probably in Cyprus and gave to the church. So when he comes, he's not coming to people he doesn't know. He's coming to folks that he's familiar with. 
These folks from Cyprus, he may not know them personally, but he knows where they're from. He kind of knows their background, their history. And then in, in chapter 9, it was Barnabas, son of encouragement, who took Saul and brought him to Jerusalem. When the church of Jerusalem went, no way. He was, he was persecuting us. He was throwing us in jail. We don't trust him. It was Barnabas who grabbed Saul and said, no, let me introduce you to him. He's a different guy. So that's the man that they send and they say, go to Antioch and figure out what's going on. This good man, this man who is full of faith, and he investigates. He goes and he looks into what's going on, and what he finds is the grace of the Lord is evident. There, there, is, there is grace of God is, is evident in this. Now, what it, how, how do you recognize grace? How do you look at grace and go, yeah, that's the grace of God? Well, remember how I've described grace in the past. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God's favor, not our favor. So I may like you, but that doesn't mean that it's God's grace that's on you. It's God's unmerited favor. It's unmerited. It's not something you deserve. It's not something you work your way up to. It's God has looked at you and said, I love this person. I put my favor on them. And that's how it is. And it's God's favor. It's his good disposition towards. So when Barnabas shows up and he looks at the church in Antioch, what he sees is God's grace evident. God's grace at work in the, the believers in Antioch. God's grace is not a warm, fuzzy feeling he has. It's not God putting our picture on the mantelpiece and going, that's my boy. God's grace is his positive disposition for us, and it works in us. Because he loves us, because he's fixed his love on us, he then begins to work in us. So I don't know what Barnabas saw, but when he got to Antioch and he looked at these believers who had been converted, what he saw was God's grace active in their lives. There was something different about them now. At one point, they may have worshipped false gods. At one point, they may have been rough and, and, and swindlers or who knows what. But when he shows up, what he sees in them is these are changed people. There is something markedly different about this group. He sees the grace of God in them, and he rejoices. He's glad for that. This is good news. This is tremendous to, to see that God's grace is working in there. And so what does he do? He's, he's interested in making disciples. What is his next step? He, said, he encourages them to remain faithful. He exhorts them. Encouraging is too weak of a term. Exhort is a stronger term. He exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So what he does is he comes to them and he starts teaching them, this is what it means to be with the Lord. This is what it means to receive the grace of God. This is what it means to walk with the Lord, is to be steadfast and to have purpose. And so there's two concepts to what he says there. There's this resolve, this idea of resolve, to remain faithful. It, it takes more than just sitting back and, and watching. That's not remaining faithful. He's telling them, you are to remain faithful. It's a command. You must remain faithful. And guess what? It's work to remain faithful. Nobody slides into Christianity. Nobody slides into holiness. No one takes a nap and wakes up and is sanctified. It is work. That's why he had to exhort them to remain faithful. So what you see today is a lot of folks begin to drift away from the church. We talked to a young man recently who said he's looking for a group because he's beginning to slide. He could feel himself drift, drifting away. 
That's a young man. I don't know if he's going to make it or not. I hope he does. But he is doing what he should be doing, which is there's a sense of resolve. Is I'm beginning to feel my faith slip away, and I'm going to work against that. I want to connect with a group of people who will encourage me in that, who will exhort me in that. So one of the things we need to do as a church is to be watching for each other and to exhort each other to remain faithful. It is work. And you can't do it alone. If you sit and do it alone, you know what you'll do? You'll listen to the voice in your own head. And guess what that voice is currently doing? Well, maybe Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. Maybe he didn't really exist. Is there really a God? Can it really? Be? That's too much, isn't it? If you do it alone, all you've got is that voice. You don't have somebody else going, no, wait, look. There's historical evidence. Jesus actually existed. He actually died. There's huge evidence to prove that he died and he rose from the dead. And God, you want to see a God? Look what he's doing in this person's life. Look what he's doing in that person's life. Watch how he works over here. He's not some figment of your imagination just because right now he's not very active in your life. But he may be very active in others. You need to hear that. You've got to hear that. That's why you need to be part of a group of believers who will encourage you, who will exhort you to remain faithful. It's hard work to be a believer. It really is. So there's a resolve. And then there's steadfastness. He wants to exhort them to remain faithful and to be steadfast with purpose. Steadfast is a stubbornness. It is saying, I refuse to budge. It is, it, it based, it's based on the resolve. It's based on that, that, that desire to remain faithful. And then once you're there to say, I'm, I'm going to stay with this. This is the best bet I have. This is the one that I, th I think is right, and I'm going to remain faithful. I'm going to have steadfastness. Now, the way that's translated in the ESV says to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. They actually kind of left a word out. The word cardia is in there. What, is, what do you think cardia is? Have you ever had an electrocardiograph? Or heard of an electrocardiograph? <laughs> it's heart. Heart is in the middle of that. As a matter of fact, the NIV says to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. The, the Christian standard says to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. And that's the next part of this idea of steadfast resolve with purpose, is we can fill our heads with facts. And the facts are necessary. They have to be there. You can't not have facts. But Christianity remains a religion of the heart. You have to have a steadfast heart. It has to sink into your heart. You have to see these things, resolve to believe these things, say these things are true. I see these things in other people, but it doesn't end there. You then must look and say, this is beautiful. This is something I delight in. This is desirable. It has sunk down into my heart. My heart is steadfast because I love this. If you don't love something, you, it will be really hard to stick with it. So this idea of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, how he came for us, what God is doing now is he's breaking down these barricades and drawing in the Gentiles is beautiful. And, and that's where we need it to resolve. It needs to ring true in our hearts and it needs to, to inflame our desires. Because if you love it, if it's sunk into your heart and you go, this is a beautiful thing, even if you don't quite believe it, you will wish it were true because it's so glorious. And if you get to that point, you're not too far from the kingdom of heaven at that point. There's a good chance you could just accidentally trip over the line and believe this stuff because it is so beautiful. So that's the nature of what Barnabas is doing in Antioch. He has come to Antioch 
to exhort, but not to beat him over the head with a Bible or, or smack him upside the head with Wayne Grudem's uh, theological, um, uh, systematic theology. And if you've never seen it, that book is huge. If I hit you with it, you'll know it. Those things are necessary. I am not belittling them in any way, shape, or form. Those are good and necessary things. You have to have the doctrine because ultimately you must connect with who Jesus is. And that's what we get to as we get to the teaching. And that's where this goes. This is, this is where we wind up heading with this. This good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, what is the next thing he does? After he's come and he's, he's evaluated the situation, he goes, you know what, this is a legitimate church. These are legitimate believers. He exhorts them, remain steadfast. Have a, have a steadfast heart. The next step is not, and feel good about it. Bye. The next step for him is he goes to Tarsus and he looks for Saul. And if you remember, that's where we left Saul, was in Acts chapter 9 after he visits Jerusalem. So he went in and out. I'm sorry, this is Acts chapter 9, verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That's where we left him. Barnabas now picks it up and he goes, you know who would be really great for this new church in Antioch, this, this growing church in Antioch? You know who would really teach them the best? Saul. I've heard the man. I watched him preach. I know who he is. And so he heads off to Tarsus to go get an excellent teacher to bring him down to Antioch to teach these saints. So like I said, the, the, the doctrine is not dispensable. You, won't, you may not arrive at the right Lord if you don't have the right doctrine. But the point is, the doctrine's not sufficient. You have to get the doctrine. You have to understand the doctrine. You have to believe the doctrine. And then ultimately, you have to love the doctrine. It has to reside in your heart with a desire. So he goes to get Saul because he believes Saul is the right man to teach. He's the right man to, to encourage these folks. And so when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. They sat around and had the coolest Bible study I could possibly imagine. As great as our Bible study is, as great as our small groups are, I would really love to have heard Paul do it. Now, we kind of get this idea that you know the, the first century was, oh, it's all perfect and, and shiny everything. Folks, that's why we have a New Testament. That's why God wrote it down. Is he didn't just strand it in the first century where, oh, if we could just get back to what Paul said. We got what Paul said. He wrote most of the New Testament for us. So if you want to do a Bible study with Paul, pick up your Bible and start reading. It's right there. He will Bible study you all the way. It's great because those folks didn't necessarily have it written down. They may have forgotten things. They may have misunderstood things. We have been richly blessed because Paul wrote it down for us. So go back and get that. That's how you grow in grace. That's how you have the grace of God present to you is you need to hear the word. That's how it sinks into your heart is you, you study the word. You understand the word. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. That was one of Saul's best gifts and Barnabas's too. You think of Saul as the primary teacher. As a matter of fact, when we get into their missionary journeys, they will look to Saul, who will be called Paul by that time, and think he's this great messenger guy. And Barnabas was just there kind of coming along. But Barnabas had a role in this as well. He, he went off on his own missionary journey. 
So as they're doing this, this is, this is what, what Barnabas' plan for helping the church to remain steadfast is, is I'm going to bring them Saul, and he and I will sit with the church and we will teach for quite a while. So God gives us those same resources to, to remain steadfast. First of all, he gives us the church. Now, when it says the church in Antioch, this is the first time the word church has been applied to anybody outside the promised land. Before, we only got it in Jerusalem and Samaria and Galilee. Now, all of a sudden, there is a church in Antioch. So God has given us the church, but it's the church at Antioch. They didn't meet with and teach every single believer that ever existed at that time, and they all met in the city of, of Antioch. That's not what they mean by the church, not all people. It was the church at Antioch. So this is that idea of a local church. Now, why, who, why am I bringing that up? Does anybody really have a problem with that? We just assume that's true. There are people who have a problem with the idea of a local church. They think it only talks about the global church. And I was like, no, it doesn't. There, there's local churches. This is a, that's something that God has ordained. Is not that we have to somehow connect spiritually you know, across all the ages or something. It happens in small groups like this. It happens when we get together. We are the church. God has given us the church so that we can remain steadfast. And according to Ephesians 4, he gave us apostles and he gave us prophets. He gave us evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He gave them to us, to the church, so that we could remain steadfast. He gave them to us so that we could do the work of the ministry. He sends us when we're very fortunate, when his grace is great upon us. He sends us sons of encouragement. Lord, please send us more. We need more sons of encouragement. He gives us his word and tells us to remain steadfast. Most importantly, he gives us his spirit. That's what it meant for them to become believers. That's what it meant for them to, to become followers of Jesus Christ, is to receive the spirit. And in all of those things, that's how he gives us his grace. That's how people will look at us and recognize God's grace in us, is by us using and doing all those things. And so the result of that is, the very next verse, it says, in Antioch, the disciples, disciples were first called Christians. Now, the word Christian, I, have you ever heard this teaching? They say it was, it was a pejorative term, and if you don't know what pejorative means, that's bad. It was an insult, like little Christs. That's wrong. If you heard that before, it's wrong. The word Christian is actually the Greek word Christos, which means Christ, and the Latin ending um, for uh, group. So it's a Greek and a Latin word smushed together. And what it means is people who are Christ's, people who follow Christ, people of Christ, the Christ group, the Christ people. So who called them Christians? Well, the way it's phrased, it sounds like it came from outside. It wasn't they called themselves. It's more of a passive sense in the, in the Greek. It sounds like others outside called them Christians. This is where they first began to be called Christians. So who called them Christians? Was it the unbelieving Jews, the Jews who refused to join them? I don't think so. Because for them to call the followers of Jesus Christians would be to admit this Jesus is the Christ. And that ain't happening. That's the issue right now is they're rejecting that. So it was probably not the non-believing Jews that said, oh, those are the Christians. It wasn't themselves. It doesn't sound like the way it's phrased. It doesn't sound like they called themselves Christians. So who's left? The Greeks, the pagans. 
And they look at this group and they go, who is that? Oh, those are the, the Christ group. That's the Christ people. They, they talk about this Christ fellow all the time. And so that's the Christ people. So that was a name that was put on them from outside. Is that a bad thing? Not really. There's only three times in the Bible that the word Christian is used. Did you realize that? We, we use the word Christian all the time. We have Christian music and Christian clothing and Christian movies and Christian this and Christian that. In the Bible, it's very seldom used. It's used here. It's used in the coming chapter when, uh, oh, not, not in the coming chapter, I'm sorry. It's, it's used um, when, um, when Paul is before uh, Herod and Felix. He's preaching to Herod, and Herod says, you would almost make me a Christian. So it's on the lips of a non-believer, an outsider, and Herod, though he was somewhat Jewish, was mostly not. And then the last place it's used is in 1 Peter 4.16. And that's where it seems to be used in a positive way, but what Peter says is, if you suffer as a Christian. So he's, he's, he's saying this, this idea, if the outside world has put on you the label Christian and you suffer, you do a good thing. You suffer for a right cause. Now, after this, the church picked up the word Christian and wore it as a badge. It was, it was not a negative sense at all. So I don't think even here it's intended in a negative way. I think it's intended as this is outsiders looking in. Now, how would outsiders look at a group of people and go, you know what they're all about? They're all about Christ. It's football season. I don't know if you noticed that. Have I talked about it a lot yet? <laughs> it's coming. Um, so how would you look at somebody and go, you know what, they're, they're Rams fans. They're a Ram group. They're a group of L.A. Rams followers. How would you know that? Because they have T-shirts and hats that say Rams. They, they may have big Slurpee cups they're drinking out of with Rams on it, and that's what they talk about. And you go to a restaurant, and they're all crowded around the TV watching the Rams play. That's how you know. That's what they're about. How would you know that a group is Christian? They're a Christian group, a Christ group, a group of people who are about Christ. Not because of the t-shirts, not because of the Slurpee cups, but because that's all they talk about. That's what they're about. That's what they do. So this section, I think, is about being called a Christian. And it really has to do with the outside world looking in. And it asks us the question, how will they know that you are a Christ group? What is it about you that will make you a Christ group? And I think we've gotten some hints so far. I think Barnabas was the big hint. He saw the grace of God at work in them. There was something going on with these people so that the outside world, people who would not understand the theology, who would not understand a monotheistic religion, would look in and go, oh, those folks, that's all they're about is, is Christ, whatever a Christ is. That's all they talk about. That was something that was operable, and it was working in them. And that takes us really to the third point. So the first point about being called a Christian is preaching. The second point is teaching. So preaching is we're talking about Jesus Christ to each other and to an outside world. And then teaching, we're coming together and we're studying and we're growing in our understanding of who Jesus is. And then the last part I found really interesting, it kind of threw me, was caring. And here's how it goes. This last section talks about caring. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them was named Agabus. He stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. 
And they did so, sending it by the elders, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The response, this is what it looks like when, when you're identified, successfully identified as a Christian, is there's a sense of generosity. Now it says, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. There were prophets in those days. Are there prophets today? This is where I get fired. <laughs> were, are there prophets today? When we discuss this, we wind up in this kind of a logical loop. Because we're evangelicals, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, and we believe as Protestants in sola scriptura, Scripture alone is sufficient. So because we believe that, we would say, well, once the Scriptures were completed, we have no need for a prophet anymore because we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. So therefore, the office of prophet must have gone away. Okay, is that based on the Scriptures? If we're going to be Protestants, if we're going to be evangelicals, if we're going to say, Lord, show me from your word, can we get it from that? Only secondarily, and I think it's, it's an inference. Here's the problem when we ask, are there prophets today? Listen to a couple other verses that talk about prophets. 1 John 4, chapter 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. Now, if... If John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew as soon as the writing was finished that prophets would go away, he might have mentioned that. He wouldn't have to tell the church for all ages, test all the spirits because false prophets are out there. He would simply say, well, for now, we got to be really careful, but sometime in the future, don't worry about it, prophecy's gone. That's an argument from silence. That's, that's not really helpful. 2 Peter 2. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets or false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Peter warns us, just like there were false prophets in, in, in uh, Israel, so there will be false teachers rising up. He ties that idea not to false teachers then, but to false prophets. So he's warning us. So if we want the scriptures to tell us that prophecy is ended because we believe in the sufficiency of scripture, we're at a loss because it seems to say there's going to be more and there's going to be some bad ones. So my take is, and this is, like I said, we'll have the congregational vote to fire me after this, okay? Is I think somehow, and I don't understand how really well, there are still prophets. There are still people who can speak like this. What do we do about that, though? Because our, our prophets, our apostles have warned us there's false prophets out there. Be extraordinarily careful. Well, if we're going to be true evangelicals and stick to the sufficiency, the perspicuity, I went to seminary. Perspicuity means it, clearness. You can see clearly the, the, the inerrancy, the sufficiency, the perspicuity of the scriptures. And we believe in sola scripture that we don't need other outside things. If someone comes up and says, hey, I'm a prophet, what we do is we go to the scriptures and we measure them against that. This, our apostle John told us, to be extremely careful and to test you. So just because somebody shows up and says, I am a prophet, if you're gonna be a true evangelical, you don't say, no, you're not. Nor do you say, well, tell me, brother. What you do is you test the spirits and you listen to them and you evaluate and you carefully say, is that lining up with what I already know to be true from scripture? So these prophets are operating before, I think any of the Bible had been written. So they're a little bit different. They're in a little bit slightly different category. They still need to be tested. They still need to be evaluated. 
But when this prophet comes down from Jerusalem and tells them there's a worldwide famine, they know Agabus. We'll hear about Agabus again. And they believe his word. They have evaluated him. They have tested him because that idea of testing prophets is not a New Testament concept. Moses said, if a prophet comes to you in the name of the Lord and he announces something and it doesn't happen, stone him. He's a false prophet. Get rid of him. So if someone comes to us and announces something and it doesn't happen, don't stone him. It's a different, different way that God has orchestrated his people now. We don't get to kill people. But you don't listen to them. At that point, you say, that's not right. And I'm not going to trust another prophecy you have because if you're a true prophet, you wouldn't have made that mistake. And folks, there are plenty of people on television, on the internet, publishing books, giving seminars that are false prophets. And I just want you to be careful with them. Evaluate them. What they've predicted, has it come to pass? No? Then don't listen to them anymore. Don't give them a second chance. Don't give them a third chance. That's it. If they were true prophets, it would have happened. And so look what happens with Agabus. He prophesied that there would be a worldwide famine. And what does Luke say next? This took place. This happened. Agabus is a trustworthy prophet. What he says happens. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now, we should be able to look back in history and say, did this take place? And guess what? Under Claudius, there were five famines. And some of them were very big. Some of them were worldwide. One of them was specific. Josephus mentions there was one that really hit Judea hard, and that was around 44 AD, which would be right about this timeline. Isn't that amazing? You turn a spade over in Jerusalem or in Israel, and you get biblical evidence that, hey, we can trust this. This really actually happened. So if this is what happened, what, what comes up next in our scriptures is the death of Herod. So Herod lips off about being great and mighty and, and a god, and God zaps him, strikes him dead. Well, we know when Herod died, he died in 44. So this prophecy must have happened slightly before 44. There was a famine in Jerusalem from 44 to 46. It, isn't it just coincidental that it all lines up with exactly how the people who lived it at the time said it happened? So if this is, if this is what's happened, then sometime before, God sent Agabus and said, this is what's coming. And it happened. It came. And, and the worst part of it was in Judea. It was in the promised land. And so how does the church respond? When they find out this is coming, they begin to collect money. So the disciple determined, each one according to his ability, nobody went bankrupt doing this. They gave what they were able to give, and they gathered up a large offering, and by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, they took it to Jerusalem and said, let's help the saints here. It's, you, you guys are especially being hit. You're especially being hit hard by this famine, and so we're going to come with you. We're going to come alongside you. We're going to support you. Here's some money. We can get and Food prices are going to go through the roof, but we're going to help you get food. That's what the church does. That's what it means to be called a Christian. Is Can people look at you and go, oh, they have impeccable doctrine, if you're just standing there? They don't have a, you may have dorky doctrine. They don't know. But if they see you being generous to somebody else, they may not right now say, oh, that's a Christian. I wish. But they know, oh, that's a good person. There's something about them. And then as you grow in relationship, as you get to know them, they'll go, well, how come you're like that? I'm not like that. I'd like to be like that. Well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. 
I can be free to give because I've received so much. I don't have a problem with being generous to other people because God has been so generous to me. Jesus Christ came and he died for my sins. You see where that goes? Do you think somebody would look at you at that point and go, oh, you're a Christian? Yeah, that's kind of the idea. That generosity, that, that overflowing givingness is part of what it means to be a disciple. So we start with the preaching. You have to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose again, and ascended into heaven at the right hand of God. You have to believe this. Teaching, you have to understand how that matters in your day-to-day -day life. Why is that different? What's that got to do? And the result of that, when that takes up root in your heart, when you have a steadfast heart, that heart is now broken wide open, and you're a generous person according to your ability. That doesn't mean you sell your house and give everything to the church and live on the street corner. If God's calling you to do that, let's talk. <laughs> but it means you're a generous person with whatever you have, your time, your smile, handshake, money, ability to, to fix a house or whatever it is. That's that changed life. That's the picture of grace that Barnabas could see in that group is these are generous, loving, overflowing people. They will give. They care. They care about other people. That's what it means to begin to grow into, in grace, to grow in grace in a way that can be measured, can be seen, so that the disciples at Trinity Community Church would then be called Christians, a word coined by outsiders looking in and knowing something's going on there. That's a group. That's a people. Now, does this generosity only extend to fellow believers? Because that's what they did here, right? They took up an offering, they sent it to Jerusalem, they gave it to the church. Therefore, Christians only have to give money to support Christians. Do you think that the outside world would look in and go, hey, they give money to each other, they must be Christians. That was the problem with the early church. That's, that's one of the words Christian was used in a kind of negative way was somebody wrote to the emperor and said, I don't know what to do with these Christians. They're taking care of the poor. What am I, I am I'm supposed to persecute them or? I, I don't understand these people. Give me some direction. He used the term Christians to describe them that way. It was because that giving, that offering, did Christ only offer and give for himself? He emptied himself for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While people are yet unbelievers, we can give for them. So we need to be generous, especially to the community of faith. They're our brothers and sisters. They're the ones we're called to. But it can spill out as well. Because we want to have that stamp. They're, oh, those must be Christians. And now today when you hear that term, they must be Christians, it's kind of usually used in a negative, snide way. But it's generally because they've been watching TV and not actually talking to real Christians. So let's break that mold. Let's, let's bust that thing open. This is what we mean by Christian. Not what you're thinking. This is what we mean by Christian. We're, we're, we're growing in grace. We're growing in knowing who Jesus Christ is. And that results in a generous, a giving lifestyle, an outpouring lifestyle. That's what we mean by Christian. Not a voting block, not, not a, a, a somebody you can market to, but a changed life. 
so that Barnabas would walk in here and look and go, ah, the grace of God is present here. That's what we're looking for. That's what it means to be called a Christian. Let's pray that we grow in that, and let's pray for that now. Lord, we, um, we can stamp the word Christian on the front of our church. We can put it on our letterhead. We can stamp it on our website. We can call ourselves Christian. We can label everything around us Christian. But Lord, when it comes down to it, when we look at what the scripture says, it's those who are outside looking in, saying those are Christ group. Those are Christ people. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make us the kind of folks who, who would be Christian in the way you intend it, not the cultural meaning of that term that's, that's used so popularly, popularly today. But Lord, as, as true Christ people. And so Lord, I, I, I don't want to shy away from the term. It's biblical. It's used of us. And some people choose to say that they're Christ followers, and maybe that's more clear. But Lord, I think it would be a delight if we were such changed people, if we grew so deeply in grace that people would use the term Christian in a positive way. And so, Lord, would you be at work in us? I pray that through the preaching, through the teaching, the caring would flow and that we would be the community that you've called. Mixed between Jews and Gentiles, different races, different classes, different personalities, different all those things. And somehow, Lord, it just works. Well, we know what that is. We know it works because, Lord, you've caused your grace to grow in all of us. So, Lord, be present with us. And, and Father, I want to selfishly pray for a Barnabas to show up someday and just encourage us. Come and tell us that he sees wonderful things in us. And, Lord, maybe you could make us all sons of encouragement. Maybe that might be the, one of the marks of your grace in us. Father, have mercy and cause us to grow, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.